it's so isolating to be an author for the most part. And so being around other authors, especially if you make the effort to meet them and possibly have ongoing relationships is, um, I think that's really important. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or share this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a dollar per episode, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Today, we're going to be talking to thriller author Tammy Uliano. Tammy's writing is inspired by her day job as a physician, researcher, and educator at the University of Florida, Go Gators. Her short fiction has been recognized by Glimmer Train, Flame Tree Press, Flash Fiction Magazine, and others. Her debut medical thriller, Fatal Intent, was published by Ocean View in March 2021. So please welcome Tammy to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for came, coming on. And just so everyone knows, the Go Gators was me, not Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> but I echo it. <laughs> all right. So we're going to start by kind of going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from them before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So I'm a doctor and was very invested in my teaching and stuff and um, went to my mentor and said, you know, there's not really a good textbook for medical students for anesthesia. And so he said, well, let's write one. And I said, oh, you can do that. And so (laughs) he and I spent a couple of years writing an introductory textbook. And when we finished that project, he said, now what are we going to do? And I thought, that sounds great to keep our collaboration going. And he said, how about a fiction book? Which shocked me because here's this 80-year-old German man wanting to write (laughs) fiction. So we decided to write a thriller and we started it and then he fell ill and passed away. But Mm. I had the bug. So that was about six or seven years ago, I guess. And I decided that I wanted to do it and write a fiction novel. And I sat down to write and realized I had not a clue how to start. Um, So even though I'd read a ton, I realized that the craft had never been my focus. And I could write technical stuff all day long, but but to write a gripping novel was a completely different animal. So I started, as I always do, doing ungodly amounts of research on (laughs) how to do something. So I spent a lot of time reading books and listening to courses and wrote my book, rewrote my book, sent it to people, rewrote it again over a a many year process, tried to get an agent, got probably 40 or so rejection letters from agents. So I just kept trying. Can you tell me a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published fiction author? I had always loved reading, even as a child, and thought it would be really cool to write my own stuff. And so as a kid, I wrote some stuff that was, you know, absolutely horrible. But then I got so involved with school that I kind of didn't really think about it again until after I'd finished my training and my kids were a little bit older. And probably once my mentor suggested it and it occurred to me that this actually could be done because we published a nonfiction book. And I I think right around then I said, wow, this would be, I don't think I knew I could do it, but I (laughs) thought I would really like to try. Nice. 
Can you talk a little bit more about how you learned more about the publishing industry, especially like how it works, how to query, you know, how to go about getting published? Some of that came from just Googling and reading articles on Writer's Digest and the different sources you can find for free online. Um, but the best thing I think I did is I went to a couple of meetings. I went to um, the first one I went to, I had submitted my book for an award and it was a finalist. And so I decided I was going to that meeting because I wanted to be there when when they didn't actually announce me as the winner. But <laughs> And you meet all these other writers and they have little sessions on everything from how to write a sentence to how to get published. And it shocked me how much there was to this world that uh, it hadn't occurred to me that there were so many layers to it. And so um, it was a long process to learn about it. And then there's a big um, divergence between do you want to get traditionally published or do you want to publish yourself? And I decided early on that I really wanted traditional publishing. And so that then branches into other things, whether you go to small publishers yourself or whether you try and get an agent and, and that's a, a whole nother world. Mm -hmm. So Fatal Intent is the first fiction book that you wrote? Yes, it is. It was called Do No Harm for the first six years of its existence. But when I finally got a publisher, they said, mm, no, not good a name because um, there's so many books named that already and a movie. Mm -hmm. And so we we came up with Fatal Intent. And you queried that for how long with literary agents? So I was really fortunate at that meeting at, at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. Um, they had a pitch fest, which you... Um, they set a timer and you meet with a bunch of different agents for one or three minutes or whatever they set the timer for and you pitch your book. And then if they want to hear more, then they give you their card and they say, send me 50 pages or send me this or that. So you get to go to the top of the slush pile by having met them in person. And so I did that there and I did that at Writer's Digest in New York City and I did it at Thriller Fest in New York City several years in a row. And each time I would get a bunch of requests for the full, but each time they would be, it would be rejected sometimes a month later, sometimes eight months later, sometimes you never hear back, which is super frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, so I probably pitched to agents for maybe three years before I decided to look for other avenues, which was for me going directly to publishers, which none of the big publishers will accept unagented manuscripts, but there are some smaller ones that will, or ones that there's other ways without an agent, like for Ocean View, if you get introduced by one of their existing authors, then they'll read your stuff, but you can't just blindly send stuff to them. Mm. Um, but I happened to meet the publisher, so that worked much better. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, about meeting the publisher at that conference. So the super important thing that I would tell anybody out there who is hoping to do the same road is to put yourself out there and do things that are super uncomfortable for you. So so what I did was BoucherCon, which is another huge meeting, was coming up. And I decided to go because it was in Tampa, which isn't far from me. And I wrote to them and said, you know, I'd be happy to moderate a panel. I'm an absolute nobody, but I am a doctor. And I'd be happy to moderate a panel with doctor writers or medical writers to... And it was just sort of out of the blue that I volunteered for this. And they said, mm -hmm. sure, why don't you do this? And so it was a panel of three people, one of whom is a family physician who is actually the publisher at Ocean View. She owns Ocean View. And so it was just pure serendipity. So we met. I didn't know who she was at the time, other than just reading about her and knowing basically that she was involved in publishing. And as we prepared for the panel and we 
the panel went very well. And then afterwards I mentioned that I was still pitching my novel and she says, well, why don't you send it to me? And I said, oh, that's great. But I really didn't plan to because <laughs> I was still hoping to get a big five publisher. And then about six months later, I emailed her and said, would it be okay if I send it to you? And she said, send it on. And and a month or two later, they offered me the opportunity to publish with them. And it's just been amazing since then. Nice. Yeah, a good moderator can make a great impression. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I'd done a fair amount of public speaking, so it wasn't putting myself out that far. But still, for me to volunteer for something as a nobody with no real expectation that they would take me on was, was um, you know, nobody likes to be told no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had no reason to accept me other than maybe nobody else volunteered. So, mm-hmm. so it worked out. Can you read that successful query letter for us? Dear, and then this was Ms. Gusson, when her elderly patients start dying at home days after minor surgery, anesthesiologist Dr. Kate Downey wants to know why. The surgeon, not so much. When she presses, Dr. Charles Ricken places the blame squarely on her shoulders. With those shoulders currently on probation, the chief of staff sides with the surgeon and Kate is left to prove her innocence and save her career. With her husband in a coma, it's all she has left. Aided by her eccentric great aunt Erm, a precocious medical student and the son of a victim, and undeterred by threats and a break-in, she pieces together a mercy killing for hire scheme. The stakes rise against her family, her colleagues, and her own life. When her husband becomes the next target, Kate is forced to choose which of her loved ones to save and whom to sacrifice in the process. Do No Harm, set primarily in a North Central Florida teaching hospital, runs approximately 78,000 words and would appeal to readers of medical mystery thriller authors such as Michael Palmer, Kathy Reichs, and Tess Gerritsen. I am a professor of anesthesiology at the University of Florida, where I've taught and cared for patients for more than 20 years. I've published a well-reviewed introductory anesthesia text, now in its second edition with Cambridge University Press. My short fiction has been recognized by several places. Thank you for your time and consideration. Nice. Thank you for sharing. For anyone listening, the text of that is going to be available via a link in the show notes. So if you just process information better visually, you can check that out. And I want to ask you now, because you you mentioned two of them in your query letter as comps, but you actually got some blurbs from some pretty rock star mystery authors like Lee Child, Tess Gerritsen, Kathy Rakes. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about? So the key for that was going to Thriller Fest. So whatever the biggest meeting is for your genre, go. And again, no matter how introverted you are, which I am an introvert, you walk up to the authors and you introduce yourself and they are the nicest people in the world. They are so friendly and and you don't have to be, you know, fangirl the whole time, but just say hello, say I like what you write. If you can mention something in particular about, you know, their writing that shows you actually read it buy one of their books and have them sign it at one of the signing things. And so they've seen your face twice and hopefully heard your name twice. And so I got to meet all of those people at Thriller Fest for two or three years in a row. I'm sure they didn't remember me. But then when it came time for my query, for my request for blurbs, um, I sent them a letter and said, here's, I've met you at Thriller Fest. You were so generous with your advice or whatever, hopefully tweaking their memory for when they met me, maybe. But I have to admit that part of what made it 
easy for me was probably because this all happened at the beginning of COVID and I was a doctor. And so I think many of them were both sort of uniformly grateful to healthcare workers for <laughs> for COVID, but also all their book tours were canceled. So they were sitting around their houses and probably <laughs> had a little bit more time than they usually do. So, so it was a little bit of luck of the draw on that. But I don't think that if I hadn't met them and could specifically say, you know, I enjoyed meeting you and talking about this, that I, I think, think I would have had as good of a response from, from them. So how has your experience been since signing your contract? You said that it's been great so far. Uh, specifically, did you have any surprises along the way? So I went into this knowing very little about any of it, which which is not like me. Normally, I research things like crazy. That's sort of one of my weaknesses as I start doing research and I end up in a rabbit hole for hours instead of actually getting any writing done. And so here's this contract and I don't even understand a lot of the verbiage and stuff. But somebody recommended that I go on to Authors Guild, which I joined, and they actually have an army of attorneys that will review your contract for free once you've joined. And so I sent them the contract and they reviewed it and they said, these are the things you need to change. These are the things we recommend you change. These are the things that it would be helpful if you could get changed. And um, I succeeded on less than 50% of it, but at least then I had some confidence that I was doing things right. And I listened to a couple of courses, you know, online webcast, whatever, on uh, contracts and things. And, um, you know, could I have gotten a better deal? Probably, but... I wasn't really, you know, this is my debut. I just wanted to make sure it was going to get published. It was going to get produced. They're doing a hardcover and an audiobook and a later and an ebook and later they're going to do the paperback and and so it just I didn't want to do it myself print on demand kind of thing just because I don't have time <laughs> to try and learn all that stuff mm-hmm. on top of learning how to write. I sent the book in I think it was November they sent me an email in December saying they really liked it and that when they got back from New Zealand, where they own a winery, um, that they would <laughs> call me. And so they called me two days after I had my knee replaced. So I was a little groggy. Um, and I said, absolutely, which, you know, probably I should have said, well, let me think about it. And, <laughs> but I wasn't interested in playing games. And so I think we had the contract signed by the end of February, but it was still a year before it got published because small presses have, you know, they only publish like 13 or 14 books a year. And so that's like one a month and they'd already filled their slate for a year. And we were doing stuff intermittently for that entire year. You know, first they send you the edits that they want. And fortunately, I didn't have very many edits. Um, And then they send you the proofs that you have to approve. And then they make a cover that you have to approve. And that went through several rounds. And then the ARCs come out, the advanced reader copies. And um, I went ahead and hired an outside publicist, Mm. which don't, I definitely will not make back the money that I spent on a publicist, but I felt like for my debut, I needed to do everything because it would sort of mark the future for me was my assumption. And I was blessed with the ability to afford it. So um, so I did hire a publicist who worked with the publicist for Ocean View, and together they came up with a campaign. So that kept me busy with mostly printed interview kind of stuff. Um, but because of COVID, there was no book tour. There was none of the in-person stuff. Um, so it's all been podcasts and typed interviews, a couple radio shows, 
And now I'm trying to do some book clubs. I did one a couple of weeks ago, which was really fun to hear other people's take on what I wrote. And I'm finishing the sequel. So there's lots of questions about that. And, and so it's just been, it's been a really interesting journey. I'm starting to learn about taking out ads on Facebook and Amazon and Goodreads. And, and that's a whole different world that um, part of the reason I wanted to traditionally publish is I didn't want to have to do any of that. Mm-hmm. And that's not entirely true because the publishers don't mm-hmm. do much of it, but it's been, uh, it's just been a whole new education and it's fun to, to stretch your mind and work on different things. This is the quick round. I call it author DNA. I know you're a doctor, so I have to say it has nothing to do with DNA, but it's just <laughs> it's okay. classifications that we sometimes put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I am what I would call a planter, which is not helpful, but <laughs> I plot and then I completely change it. So I sort of given up on plotting. I plot a few chapters ahead. I try to make my tent poles, you know, the main quarter, half, three quarter major events. And then in between, it's mostly pantsing. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? I'm an underwriter. I hate description. I don't read it when it's on the page. So I don't tend to write it. And that's probably my biggest criticism, but also my biggest challenge. So now that I've got three or four books written, I realized that on my first draft, I pretty much just give up on <laughs> emotional beats and things. And then on the next go through, I add them in because it's just, it, it slows things down to me when I'm trying to, to bang out the next event. I'm very similar. <laughs> Do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? My time is such that I mostly write in the morning, but I am more productive at night. But I try not to do too much at night because that's supposed to be time with my husband. (laughs) But I definitely am more awake at night and uh, uh, I would prefer to write at night. When you start a new draft, do you tend to focus more on character or plot or concept or something else first? When I start a new book, the concept is where I start. I have this desire that the book not just be a story, but to be something that there's something you leave with that is beyond the book, which is probably ridiculous and not something I'll be able to keep up. Um, but, um, but so I start with a concept and then so far the characters have been very engaging to me. And even when I have a plot in mind, it doesn't always go the way I planned mm-hmm. because the character just says, mm, no, not doing that. And I go, what? wait a minute, I'm making you up. You do exactly what I say. <laughs> And so it's really interesting when when the character sort of takes on a third dimension that is beyond even my own imagination. It's it's very cool. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Neither. I drink Diet Mountain Dew <laughs> with way too much frequency. You can't see it. I have a Diet Dr Pepper shirt on. <laughs> oh yes, I had a I had a Diet Dr Pepper phase. <laughs> and then I went back to Diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> Diet Mountain Dew and caffeine pills. It's very sad. Oh, gosh. I know. (laughs) Whenever you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I do silence unless there are sounds around, and then I'll play classical music to drown out the other sounds. But I always listen to the same thing, so so the classical music is not doesn't distract me. I can't listen to music that has words in it or a TV that's on is very distracting for me. When it comes to writing the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or get it right kind of person? That's an interesting question. I guess I'm a get it right kind of person in that I never just bang it out and stop. I always edit along the way. 
I would rather just get it down. <laughs> and it's silly that I go back and edit it because I'm going to go back and edit it again anyway. So what's the point in trying <laughs> to find the right word now? And I think I'm getting more toward the latter. I'm getting more toward just speed through and go back and fix it all later. I'm going the opposite way. I started as a get it down person and now I'm moving into a get it right person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it'd be lovely to only write one draft, <laughs> <laughs> but I changed too much along the way that I have to go back and fix anyway. Mm-hmm. What tools or software do you use to draft? I use Scrivener for my writing. And then I have an enormous whiteboard in my in my office that used to be for my kids to do homework on and us to teach them. And now it is my mind map board. So I'll draw, not draw pictures, but I'll write, you know, characters and bullet lists of things and then arrows between different characters. And they're all in different colors of colored ink and so between those two things and then with Scrivener, then I use some stuff to download to Excel to help me with, uh, I don't really use the the cards thing. I just put it into an Excel spreadsheet and get my timing down. And I've tried some of the other things like Eon Timeline I used for one of the books, but it just got to be a toy that distracted me from what I was trying to actually accomplish. So I think I do better with Excel because I have a lot of experience with that. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I really like drafting. I really like coming up with the ideas and getting them on the page, but I don't mind revising. I enjoy fixing it and deciding that I need a new thread and then trying to weave it through the whole story. So so I guess I like them both. It is interesting how completely different pieces of your mind you're using for that. And so one thing somebody suggested to me, and you can cut all this out if this is beyond what you want to talk about. When I was doing my umpteenth revision of Fatal Intent, and I mentioned to one of the authors at Thriller Fest what I was doing, she said, you can keep editing that, but at the same time, you need to be writing something new. The creative side of your brain has to keep working while the editing side of your brain is working on something else. And um, and she was so right. So I started, that's when I started writing short stories mm. because they didn't take very long, but it got me on the creative end. And then I would write one and then I'd go back to, to Fatal Intent and do something. And then I'd write another short story. And, and also getting those published, it's not as hard to get short fiction published. And so it gave me a little bit of confidence and mm. I don't know if getting my name out there made any difference because I haven't had them published in, you know, Alfred Hitchcock or anything. But it gives you just this little boost, which is, I think, really necessary sometimes when there's not a lot of positive reinforcement for writers until you get something published. Yeah, for sure. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? For Fatal Intent, I actually did not write it in order. I, I did skip around to the big scenes and then filled in in between. But since then, I've written three more books and they've all been sequential. <laughs> I think I'm just a very orderly, uh, <laughs> write in order kind of person. And so everything else I've written has been in order. And you mentioned this earlier, but just for the record, are you an extrovert or an introvert? I am an introvert. I can fake extroversion when I have to. I like meeting people. I like, you know, sort of the superficial initial conversations, but then I need to go crawl in my hole and be alone for a while. I'm definitely energized by time on my own, not by time in a big group. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You already shared your query with us. What are some of the worries or qualms that you had on your journey? Were they realized? Did you overcome them? How did they shake out? So probably the first qualm for me was 
as a doctor going through medical school, going through residency, I knew that if I worked hard enough, I would succeed. When I started writing papers and grants, there was a chance I wouldn't get them. But if I kept editing them and kept submitting, eventually I would be successful. And with writing, I felt like I could do this forever and never <laughs> get published. And, I mean, you mm-hmm. could always self-publish, which was fine. But but I felt like there was no real bar of success like I had with with science, right? It's either right or wrong. And writing is not that way. It's so subjective. And so that was very challenging to me um, as a more science-based person. And I got over that by just continuing to try and getting some positive reinforcement every once in a while and amongst all the rejections. So I mostly overcame it. I think it's a, as I read more from other authors, I think all authors continue to feel like I got one done, but that was a fluke and I'll never be able to do it again. You know, Mm -hmm. you're always having a little bit of imposter syndrome. But the fact that it just, it's the product of my creativity and my mind, you sort of convince yourself that it may not be what somebody else would do. In fact, it isn't, but that doesn't make it wrong. As opposed to taking care of a patient, I can actually do it wrong oh. <laughs> <laughs> and have a bad outcome. God willing, I won't do that. It's, uh, it's a very different process than the rest of my life. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of interesting, different, unique? So I have a standing desk. And for the most part, I'm standing, which helps me stay awake because I have a real problem with especially morning and afternoon sleepiness. (laughs) Um, But the other thing I do is I have a standing, just a laptop stand that I can, it's portable. And so I go outside and I set it up and then I write while I throw the ball with a chuck it for my dogs. So (laughs) I fling the ball and then I type for about one minute while they chase the ball. And then (laughs) as my very strange dogs, the way they fetch is they fetch it, they bring it back and then they hide it somewhere. And then they bark at me until I find it. And so, (laughs) so every couple minutes I have to take a break and go look for the little tennis ball Easter egg that they've hidden under a bush somewhere. And then I fling it again and the process starts over again. So it's a, it ends up breaking up my writing just enough to keep me awake. And it works very well, but I'm sure it's quite quirky. Yeah, I haven't heard that one at all. <laughs> the other thing I do that's a little bit quirky, but that helps tremendously and that may be more useful to your listeners is when I get stuck, I have um, I just take out a piece of paper and a pencil. Yes, real old school. And I have a character, not necessarily the POV character, even a side character, write me a letter. Mm -hmm. And so they write a letter about why they're doing what they're doing. And it's not the form filled out. I went to school at this school and I was born in this year and I have brown hair. It's just a, you know, when I was a kid, my mom locked me in a closet and it made me scared of the dark and, you know, just free form, Mm -hmm. no plan, (laughs) very random stuff. And then usually I just scan it in and to save it in in Scrivener. But I've learned so much. Well, I guess learned is the wrong term, but for better or worse, I've learned so much about my characters from them just sort of stream of consciousness telling me about themselves and their motives. And it just brings a whole different perspective on, on things and really opens up other avenues for me. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, when you were getting, you know, all those rejections and you weren't sure how you're going to get published, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? 
So I think the most important thing for me was very early on, I did a course. The lady's name is Margie Lawson. She does these immersion courses. And just on a whim, it was the very first course I ever went to. I just asked my husband if I could spend, I don't know, it was $500 or something plus a flight to go to this thing for a week. And it was so far out of my comfort zone, but I just said, I'm going to do it. It had good reviews. And so I went and it was eight women and seven of us just absolutely bonded. We write in completely different genres where one of the girls is was in her 20s and one was in her 70s. And some of us have kids and some of us don't. It was just this eclectic group that you would never put together, but somehow we bonded and we've stayed together. And for the last five years now, I guess, we uh, talk on the phone. It used to be once a week. Now it's like once a month. We have a Skype chat and we um, get together every summer for a week at my lake house and just spend the week writing. And then in the evenings, we read each other what we're writing and critique each other's stuff. It's not as much critique as it is more cheerleading, but also, you know, if one of us gets stuck on our plot, then we'll go for a walk and just bounce things off of each other. It's just, so it's not a critique group. It's specifically not a critique group because none of us write in the same genre and you can't really critique other people's stuff. But then when we would talk, you know, somebody would be getting closer and somebody would be feeling bad and somebody would be having something go wrong with their family or whatever. But just by being together and talking about it, each conversation, you'd realize everybody's, somebody's up and somebody's down and it's never the same person down all the time. And so we could support each other. And, but it, I really encourage people to, to have that group. So a critique group is wonderful. I've never been part of one that I really had great success with. I've had some really awful experiences, <laughs> but this group that is purely support has been phenomenal. A lot of people have mentioned kind of their writing friends and answering that question. So yeah, for sure. What do you feel like are some of the biggest mistakes that you made along the way that you maybe want to warn listeners about so they don't do the same thing? So the first one would be just sitting down and starting to write without knowing what you're doing. Not that that's wrong, but at the same time, you should be taking some courses or reading some books on craft. I still struggle with it, but analyzing the craft of well-written books, I think is very important. And I struggle because I get so engaged in the book, I forget to be analyzing it. And so usually I have to reread a book in order to do that. Mm -hmm. I mostly do audiobooks, and that's really hard to do it from that. I have to keep reminding myself, wait, wait, how are they, you know, describing things or whatever. So it's better for me to actually have a paper book and a pencil and actually write all over my book, which gives me the willies, but it feels like <laughs> it actually works better that way. You have to be willing to invest some time and not expect that your first thing you write, even though the first time you write it, you go, this is awesome. And then you go back and read it a day later and you go, I thought that was good. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. And so you have to just keep, you know, they say, butt in chair, right? You have to keep writing, but at the same time taking classes. And I highly recommend if you can afford it, taking classes that give you feedback, not just a webinar where you listen to somebody teach you, but one where you are given lessons and you do them and you turn it in and people, preferably not just your classmates, but the actual teacher gives you some feedback that says, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. When you're first starting out, the lecture ones are okay if you learn that way. But after a while, I think it's a waste of money. It'd be better to save up and take one course with feedback than to take five 
that are just lectures. Because most of the lecture stuff, I'm sure the teachers would not like me saying this, but most of it you can find as PDFs somewhere, <laughs> you know, or in a book that was way cheaper. So that's, that's my thought. So this is similar, but can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you personally learned on your journey to publication? Perseverance is probably the biggest thing that I wasn't sure I had in me because <laughs> I'm used to being having a deadline and being successful and being done and not this unknown endpoint that may or may not be the endpoint I think I want. So sticking to it, but also finding a way to get to these meetings. I really think the in-person meetings once COVID is over are huge for developing your tribe, meeting people, and just being inspired by all the variety of people who are writing in and outside your genre. It's so isolating to be an author for the most part. And so being around other authors, especially if you make the effort to meet them and possibly have ongoing relationships, is um, I think that's really important. And it can be very expensive, but so find a one nearby, you know, like BoucherCon was in Tampa and BoucherCon's not cheap, but um, if you can drive there and if you can find an Airbnb that's not too expensive, you know, it is possible to do shared rooms and things like that. It's very worth it. All right. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people who helped you along the way? I know you mentioned your group, um, but is there anyone else you want to mention? Well, the mentor who got me started, Dr. Gravenstein, of course, he's passed away, but he was very instrumental. My parents, of course, are tremendous cheerleaders and my siblings, my kids. My husband isn't much of a reader, but he's been incredibly supportive all along. You know, it's like I said, it costs some money and, and uh, vacation time for me to do things without him. And then Margie Lawson is really a very good instructor. And so if you can do one of her immersions, I highly recommend it. She's really great. And then, of course, Ocean View for believing in me and believing in Fatal Intent and letting me have my, my debut come out and, and so far do pretty well. Tammy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story with my listeners. It's been fun. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Tammy's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her book. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Tell your friends or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show with a couple dollars per month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.